Welcome everyone to the Towards Wholeness podcast where we seek to bring to you some steps that you can take to move toward wholeness in spirit and soul and body in order that you might uh, serve and bless our world. Each one of us has a calling toward that end and this podcast is intended to help you move forward toward that end. So thank you so much for joining us and we're joined today by a very special guest but before we introduce him, uh, Abby, where were you on January 6th when our world imploded at the Capitol in Washington, D.C.? Tell us a little bit about where you were and what your reaction was. I was actually driving uh, a meal to a friend who, whose husband had just tested positive for COVID and was homebound. And the husband was quarantining from the family, so she was in the home with her four children, you know, sep- separate and, and also pregnant. And so... Um, I did my little part and, and threw together a casserole to try to encourage encourage their situation. But as I was driving about an hour from from where we live here in Seattle, actually, my mom called and she said, "Are you listening to the news?" And I, I don't generally listen to the news, so I said, "No, I'm not." And, and she said, "Oh, you gotta. This is this feels historical." And so I, of course, turned on the radio and, and started to listen. And you know, my my initial reaction was quite visceral. I could feel the angst in my body. Um, I could feel it in my throat. I missed my exit on uh, Interstate 5. So I think, you know, there's this sense in which, and part of this is just, you asked how I felt. I think part of this is just me learning. There's so much I've been blind to for a long time. And as certain things, I'm made aware of certain realities that exist and dynamics that exist in our world. I think that I've been increasingly less surprised, if that makes sense, as as we see these kind of tragedies unfold right mm-hmm. here in, in the United States that are largely based on, on inequality. But I, I've promised myself that I will not be surprised. Like, I will not be surprised. And, and a lot of that's just a self-protecting thing. And I was, I was surprised. I was, mm-hmm. again, surprised. And I, I was deeply saddened. I was overwhelmed. On the way home, I pulled over and I called my husband and I just said, I just need to talk. I just need to talk. Just talk to me for a little bit about, about this. And and he did, but I think that kind of, that's kind of a snapshot of the moment for me, Richard, where, where were you on January 6th? Well, you know, uh, it it was, it was a work day. It was midweek. I think a Wednesday, perhaps if I recall. And I generally on Wednesday have a lot of phone calls, uh, zoom meetings from up here at the pass. But I also try and take a lunch break and just go ski for an hour, you know. And so I was actually out skiing and uh, my phone is uh, receiving text messages so that I can be available for work and that kind of thing. And I got a text message that was actually the New York Times saying that the Capitol had been uh, attacked, you know. And so I turned around, came back to the house, started watching and... Uh, I was upset would be my first adjective, but upset turned to real kind of rage when I saw a Jesus saves poster among the people who had done this attack. I saw, you know, hats, a guy carrying a Confederate flag and a hat with a cross on it. And, uh, uh, you know, Jesus t-shirts and that, that kind of anger toward, far right conspiracy theory stuff turned to kind of rage toward the Christian community 
and then turned to this kind of sense of profound introspection because I was like this, wait a minute, I'm a leader in the Christian community. Our church has the label evangelical attached to it. The New York Times is attaching the label evangelical to this moment. What have I done wrong that has contributed to this thing that we're now seeing? What is wrong with Christianity in America? We're so divided, so broken, and it really led to a, a kind of an introspective depression is the only way that I could describe it. And so by the end of the day, I didn't want to eat anything. I didn't want to call myself a pastor anymore. I just wanted to crawl under a rock somewhere and wish that this could go away. And I think because of our reactions, Abby, we're privileged to have a guest today who can help us talk through this polarized time that we live in. So go ahead and introduce our guest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is truly a joy. Uh, I have long been anticipating just this moment and this time on behalf of our listeners, but also just, just personally, as our guest is Dr. Mark Laberton. Mark is probably most well-known in his role as the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, where he has served, I believe, since 2013. And prior to that, uh, was a professor of uh, preaching and oversaw the preaching institute there at Fuller. But then prior to that, was an actually an ordained pastor within the Presbyterian Church for many, many years. And I say that because Dr. Laberton brings so many rich perspectives to our conversation and our time today, both on an institutional level as a person who has kind of worked in the scholastic area, but also as just a pastor with a pastor's heart and a real genuine love and vision for, for God's kingdom and for the people who make up that kingdom particularly. So, and then on top of that, I'll just add, Mark has just been such a dear friend to me and my family. So grateful for his insight and wisdom. Our paths first crossed when I was a student at Fuller 10 years ago and taking his preaching class. And from there, we've had the chance to check in maybe a couple times a year and I always just receive, I don't know, such encouragement and fullness as I walk away from those conversations. So I I attribute so much of my calling and journey and to your your guidance, Mark. So thank you for that. And yes, I, I believe uh, that there are few people in this world who could speak to this topic of evangelicalism in America in this wild and chaotic and, and somewhat tragic moment in our country. So Thank you so much for being here, Mark. I was wondering, as we get started, if you might uh, begin by just sharing with us a bit of your own story of coming to faith, which I've heard before, and I believe it kind of offers our listeners some important context to the conversation sure. that we're going to have. So, yeah. Well, thank you both very much. I'm honored to get to be part of this conversation. I have huge admiration for each of you, and uh, Abby, as you have said, we've had the, for me, the great joy of our contact over these years. And I've uh, been a cheerleader in the corners, just going, go Abby in any way that I can think of doing. And and I'm a huge admirer of Bethany and Richard, the way that the ministry of Bethany has unfolded over the years of your leadership has just been really quite amazing to watch. And there's something about the times when I visited Bethany that gives me the sense that if I was living in Seattle, it would certainly be a church I would want to frequent because it's it has a spirit about it that I just think is extremely important and, and in certain painful ways, I'm sure, made for this moment. 
as difficult as mm -hmm. that is. So I'm, I'm delighted and honored to jump into this, which let's just confess from the start, nobody knows what's going on and it's all a crazy racked situation. <laughs> so whatever it is that I'm going to throw into the mix, it's in light of the fact that nobody is the master of understanding really what's going on. But I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start with my own story. So I was raised in Yakima and, uh, and my dad was uh, a scientist, a rationalist, a modernist kind of person. And I have often joked that he, he used to save certain neck veins for the discussion of religion because he wanted to do everything possible to avoid his boys being unduly influenced by religion and religious devotion. When I was starting to go to college, I just had the sense that a, an educated person should have <clears throat> read the Bible, which I had not done. So I started reading the Bible. I began in the New Testament. And to my great surprise, not really on what anything that I would have called a spiritual quest, uh, I was really surprised what was there. My dad's argument had been avoid religion because what religious people do is they take something really great and they make it very small. And it's an argument about philosophy. It's an argument about history. It's an argument about pragmatism. It's an argument about reductionism. It's an argument about closed circles of people in tight and boundaried communities. It's about people who take the great mystery of the whole vast universe and reduce it to the scopes trial. For example, the so-called monkey trial in the, uh, the first quarter of the 20th century an amazing reduction, or you take the vast complexity of what it means to be human and you reduce humanity to just simply moral agency where all that life is, is really, are you doing good or are you doing bad? Those were things that my dad as a, as a discoverer and inventor kind of person just saw as like closing down what it means to be human and closing down what it means to live in the world. So when I started reading the gospels, the first thing that shocked me was how much Jesus and my dad had in common, that Jesus treated uh, a lot of religion and religious authorities and voices with that same kind of skepticism and caution. Uh, you study the law as though you think in it you will find life, Jesus says, as though just the reading of a book is the source of life, as opposed to the book that points us to life beyond the character of the book. And so that was an, an example of just being shocked. I used to love uh, needling my father at that stage that really he should read more of the New Testament that he and Jesus have more in common than he might guess. But then the great antidote to smallness, which would be one way of characterizing the nature of sin actually, is that, so I'm not here talking about finitude, about limitations, about particularity. I'm talking about taking something that's actually much richer and reducing it to something that it's that is much less than its actual mm -hmm. essence. So what I discovered in the gospels was that Jesus's antidote to this was what he called the kingdom of God. That if you stepped into this world of the kingdom, you stepped into a world that had been cracked open. The whole of reality had been cracked open by the life and ministry of Jesus. And then shown in its astonishing particularity through one person's life distinctly, uniquely, Jesus, the incarnate God, but it cracked open all other mysteries, all other possible categories of thought, action, attitude, and so forth. And the surprising evidence of the impact of this is that we become part of what 
in the book of Ephesians is called God's new humanity. This new communion that's created in God, Father, Son, and Spirit, which is now a new communion of unlike people who find one another, not because we share a common life experience or social location or racial identity or whatever it might be, but because we have been found in Christ. And that becomes a birthplace for an enlarged capacity for thought and love and mercy and justice and compassion, or at least it should. So the tragic story of these days is that the church itself, and in particular the evangelical part of the church, so-called, is actually showing the smallness that my father had warned about. So the challenge that mm. I know we're here to talk about is that it is, an, is in some ways the arch example in my whole life of one of the worst reductionisms and frankly worse, the greatest idolatries inside the church that I think I've ever seen or experienced quite so viscerally and pervasively. So yes, we're in a hugely challenging time and that sort of beginning point in my own Christian life has been defining. Mark, thank you for that. I, I just want to interject and say that what you just said needs to be amplified. The kingdom of God is a community of unlike people. I, that is yeah. so vital and important in this moment. Yeah. I remember uh, after 9-11, uh, there were some folk at Bethany who said, "Hey, we need to put the American flag up here on the, you know, the 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 front of the church uh, while you're preaching to remind us." And I go, "That will never happen while I'm leading. If you want somebody who will do that, you don't want me because the kingdom of God is never, ever, ever confined to any national border. The beauty right. of it is that it goes beyond the borders." Right. And, uh, I thought after 9-11, and uh, I, I thought somehow we were moving away from that the idol of nationalism, but clearly yes. uh, it's still a problem. So, Abby, I know you had a question you wanted to ask, but I just wanted to interject and say, yeah, absolutely. that, brother, because that's so powerful. I agree with you, Richard. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I've heard that story a couple times, and I, I find the words of your father both encouraging and, and so pr- prophetic. Yes, like he absolutely. Was speaking as though he was Nietzsche to all of us. Let me add one um, thing to that, Abby, just before we go on. There was, there was a follow-up sure. to this. So my mom's faith through my conversion is is quietly awakened. My dad is just, uh, you know, horrified <laughs> that this has occurred, that I've come to faith in Christ. My mom meets this pastor, tells the pastor that her son's had this religious experience. And he says, well, then I'd like to come and call on him. So on an otherwise perfectly wonderful spring day in my freshman year of college, up rolls a pastor who has come to call on me. He says, for after a few minutes of conversation, he has, has three reasons, he says. The first is that your mom has told me that you've had some kind of religious experience. The second is that that might mean you're going to become a pastor. Now, that was just not in any way on my radar. Sure. That, was, that was not where I was going. And thirdly, he said, if you do become a pastor, I want to make sure that you know which denomination has the best pension plan. Oh, gee. Now, well, you've really imagine, come full circle. I hope you didn't share that with your father because I'm guessing the vein would have popped out pretty yes, severely well, at that point. Quite the contrary, as for, for good reason, as you say, Abby, I actually did share it with my parents that night at dinner. And my mom was horrified because she knew that that, that was just so 
terrible that that's how this person would engage the sure. conversation. My dad was quiet for a little while. And then he, he just said, you know, Mark, this is what I've been talking about. Don't you suppose that one day this man also thought that he was getting to know the God of the universe, but actually it turns out when he comes to call on somebody who's a new convert to the very faith that he represents, what he offers you is, is a job and a pension plan. That's smallness. Mm -hmm. And I think in combination uh, with my conversion and that experience in my parents' home as the evidence of what my dad had been saying for all these years was just a very powerful combination. So you're, you're absolutely right, Abby, that, that my dad's words have rung and they have rung with faithfulness. I mean, they have ex they have shown me early, early on a, in a very defining way just how much we walk along an edge that can easily fall into the smallness, uh, mm. even while we are mm. trying to name the God of the universe. Mm. I want to talk about something you said, Mark. In 2018, you were speaking about the plight of the evangelical church and really this describing in a way the smallness that has been birthed through really decades and perhaps even even longer than that kind of it's kind of been a slow birth but this evolution into something that certainly doesn't resemble the kingdom of god and which is really the plight of the evangelical church and you said this you said the central crisis facing us is that the gospel of jesus christ has been betrayed and shamed by an evangelicalism that has violated its own moral and spiritual integrity and that was in 2018 and certainly we have seen this very same dynamic unfold and intensify this violation that you speak of in the last couple of years and I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe unpack those words a bit and speak to kind of this moment. Like, what is your perspective on on how they uh, continue to be particularly true in, in 2021 within the evangelical church in America and specifically the white evangelical church in America? Right. Well, let me say one thing to frame it, and then I'll come to that specific question. Mm -hmm. When evangelicalism in America was born, it happened really in the mid-century and mid-20th century. It had been present. It had formed England through the eras of the Great Awakening. It had shaped early formation of the American church. But in the way that it took shape by the mid-20th century, it was in response to setting itself as something quite distinct from either the fundamentalist church or the modernist church. In the mm. 20s, there was this so-called fundamentalist modernist controversy. And out of that, there were these two camps. One camp claimed to believe, quote, in the inerrant authority of the Bible and in its literal interpretations. And then the more liberal side of the church was arguing for the, the legitimacy of reason and of critical examination of the Bible, but also of theological and other issues. So what ends up happening is that there's kind of three categories fundamentalism modernism on both extremes and evangelicalism was seen to be a, an attempt at a kind of middle third way and that largely did remain roughly so and it had its own problems uh, absolutely this was no purist movement but it had a primarily a spiritual and theological identity what happens by the time you get to the 1980s is that suddenly fundamentalism is awakening to the fact that their sociology has changed the, the lower educated, poorer 
less theologically sophisticated character of fundamentalism was beginning to change, but not at its core. It just wanted a better social location. And that was never going to be found under the rubric of being fundamentalist. You had to find some other way of tagging yourselves. And furthermore, you had in a variety of people like Jerry Falwell, the example of people who wanted to now re-enter the political or public square. And the combination of that combined in the 1980s through television, through the birth of the moral majority, to what I've thought of as a, as a tsunami of fundamentalism washing over the top of evangelicalism and claiming the more hospitable and socially acceptable term evangelicalism. So what you ended up having was then a fundamentalism that is really using the name evangelical in the, in the way that it had been first established, but wanting to now really redefine it from the core with every instinct uh, that was still part of fundamentalism. So what we're actually seeing in the American moment that we're in is in part the way that not only that movement, which was a fundamentalist movement that took over evangelicalism, but it was amplified very significantly by the way that the press willingly co-opted into that or cooperated with that and decided this was the character of how it was going to be understood. This is all part of why David Brooks uh, wrote a very important story by the early 2000s in which he said, he wrote an article in the New York Times called Who is John Stott? And the reason that he wrote that article, and you will see this if you find the article, which you can easily do, he is arguing, is evangelicalism really Jerry Falwell? Or is evangelicalism really something much more thoughtful, much more sensitive to culture, much more grounded in a richer understanding of the Bible, much more intellectually sophisticated and humble than the Jerry Falwell version? And that's why he wrote that little article, Who is John Stott, with the argument being made this is the kind of deep evangelicalism that is global evangelicalism and it's the best of american evangelicalism but it is not part of the vein of the fundamentalist movement that, that washed over evangelicalism so when we come to the day that we're in right now and when i experienced too january 6th and i too like richard was just horrified by the signs of jesus saves and jesus imagery and the cross intertwined with the horror of that particular event, defended quite explicitly by some people in the name of Jesus, as though the Trumpian movement was a movement of God, that that space horrified me. It horrified my understanding of the character of God. It desecrated, again, the name of Jesus and of the Christian faith, and certainly of evangelicalism. Mark, yeah, thank you so much for that. I would uh, just point our listeners to an article that I just read last night entitled The Wasting of the Evangelical Mind, which speaks exactly to what you're addressing. It's this notion that uh, somewhere along the line, we sacrificed rationality. And and uh, I think we're paying the price now. It's a, there's a sense in, in which we're we're reaping uh, what we've sown, uh, and and I would just encourage readers to look at both that article in the New Yorker, and if you want more, I also posted uh, the the link to the John Stott article. So thank you for that, and I know Abby, you have a follow up sure. question here. Yeah, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read that quote just one more time, Mark. Sure. And and then yeah, I'd love for you to kind of unpack how how the context you just offered has really 
has really led to this crisis. So the central crisis facing us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been betrayed and shamed by an evangelicalism that has violated its own moral and spiritual integrity. When evangelicalism is at its best, of course, it's centered in the evangel. That's the fundamental character of what evangelicalism historically has focused on. Who is the evangel? What is the evangel? That is the, the good news. What's the character of the good news? What's the character of the kingdom? What is it that God has accomplished in and through Jesus? And what are its implications personally and collectively? What are its implications for the church? What are its implications for society, culture, creation, etc.? So it's all about being evangel-centric, which is the word I'm using to describe where we are at this stage at Fuller, that we are seeking to be evangel-centric letting the evangel itself define us. What's gradually grown up and now been so horribly on display is what I would call the ickalisms of evangelicalism. If you take the evangel and you divide it from the word evangelicalism, oh. it's the ickalisms of evangelicalism that are the problem. And what those are are a whole set of accretions that have very little to do with the gospel, but have everything to do with social location, race, uh, sometimes gender, so many different things that, that are related to the themes of nationalism, ultimately, and so forth. So what has happened, tragically, is the evangel, the good news of Jesus, has been identified increasingly in the public square as the expression of all of these additions that really have nothing to do with the gospel intrinsically. They have everything to do with the kind of people and the way of thinking or not thinking, the kind of acting or not acting, the kind of listening or not listening that is reflected by the sociological paradigm of people who have adopted the word evangelicalism, but are not actually people who are seeking to be evangel-defined. And or they've become so confused about the evangel, they think the evangel is so many of the social location issues that have to do with the matters that we've just referred to. So, so I think the trick is, how do you parse those things and how do you distinguish them in the public square? Because evangelicalism has basically been defined by whoever has the loudest mic at any given moment, it's very difficult to find the kind of space uh, institutionally or politically or socially or in media to be able to figure out how can the conversation even move forward? because the loudest voices, the ones that get the best sales and attention, are the voices that are the most bombastic. The character of Jesus is not bombastic. So by the very difference between the bombastic character of evangelicalism in America right now, especially white evangelicalism, and the non-bombastic character of Jesus, you find already right there the, the virtual impossibility of how these two things can, quote, find peace with one another because they, one, that is the evangel, is meant to critique the other. So I've recently been saying that I pray that the evangel will, will kill evangelicalism in order for the evangel to be able to dis differentiate itself. And for those who want to seek the evangel-centered life and the evangel-centered church and the evangel-centered life and ministry in the, in the public square to, to be able to reemerge as genuinely Christ following, as opposed to simply a reflection of social location. I think that's amazing, Mark. And it, in my own language, I've said to people, hey, 
if this is really good news, why are you so mad? Why are you so mad at everybody? Mad at every occasion, mad at people who are different than you. I mean, this anger seems completely contrary to any notion that this is good news. We should be people who are declaring with joy in our heart uh, what you articulated uh, earlier in the podcast from your testimony, that there there is a God who has kind of recalibrated a broken universe and we're on a trajectory toward total healing and somehow that's gotten lost. So I really, I appreciate that word. I'm reflecting as you're, you're talking, Mark, because I, you know, I grew up in a, a small town that I think 80% have endorsed Trump in the last election, some uh, 2016 and, and more recently in our county, uh, largely white though that's shifted some in the last decade, but kind of small town Washington, um, apply the stereotypes because I'm sure they're applicable in a lot of ways, uh, but also people that I love and, and care deeply for and who have been cared for deeply by. And, and largely many of them, re- though we don't agree in a lot of ways on, on these very issues of conversation, have remained in contact with, whether closely or just here and there. But one of the things that I observe is this real need to protect something. Like there's a genuine fear and a genuine, a genuine, man, if I don't, if I don't take a stand, if I don't lock down the border, if I don't protect a certain uh, notion of family or marriage or any number of things, then the whole, the whole ball of yarn unravels, you know? Right. And it's really interesting to me to, it gives me empathy to, to try to get in touch with that fear a little bit. Right. But I think one of the, the things I found so interesting, and this gets back to what your dad named, is that the starting place of the, the good news has always been about preservation. Mm. It, 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 was, it doesn't seem to have ever been, had the breadth and the depth and the, the ability to hold, <laughs> to hold all of this. And, and God, God is still good. And I can, I can, it's, it's about more than my own self-preservation in a sense. And I, I name that just to name, I think there's a conversation around that particular fear that's an important one because it's such a real thing for folks that there's no getting past it just by intellectualizing or convincing or uh, debating. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think I think what you're sketching is is exactly the, the character of the crisis. And uh, there is a there is a fundamental taproot of fear that is certainly driving a great deal of what's happening and and as you said rightly there there is certainly that also uh, in the New Testament I, I'm, I was struck the other day when I was reading Acts 18 which is the portion of Acts where Paul uh, has has finished what he had to give in Athens and then he makes his way to Corinth and by that stage, Romans uh, have kicked out Jews, and so there's a wandering population of of Jews that have now arrived in in the highly polytheist world of of uh, of Corinth. And Paul starts as he always did by preaching in the synagogue, trying to argue to persuade people to believe in that Jesus was the Christ. And eventually, he kicks off the dust off his feet and says, "You're not going to." receive it. Now, what's interesting in that moment that's relevant to what I think you just said is that 
there was a great deal of fear in Israel over what would happen if a Jew who converted to the be a follower of this new message of Jesus was to actually take hold because so much would have be would have been placed at, at stake, right? The whole identity mm-hmm. of that immigrant community was being told that it was going to be different if they were to hear and follow Paul and Paul's mm-hmm. teaching. So the fact that it taps into a really profound anxiety is very human. So I want to, mm-hmm. I, I do want to start with the fact that we are fragile. I've been working on a book that may someday see the light of day, but it's a it's a book on fear and. And I think when the Bible teaches us that we need to let the fear of the Lord be the beginning of our wisdom, it's meant to say, let this be the core from which all other fears are are faithfully calibrated. And I think yeah. in this case, we're facing a fear. Okay, so America's changing, life is changing, race is changing, gender's changing, the economy's changing, power is changing, Laurel, common social norms, so-called, uh, especially among white people, are, are changing etc. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to either find a way to, to ground all this with a clarifying, uh, the clarifying hope of the fear of the Lord, or you're just going to get crazy because you're, you really do believe that you are on the front line having to defend first order crises. And therefore, if that means storming the capital, so be it, right? That, that argument is something which I think, uh, I, you know, am repelled by, but I, it's not because I don't understand the depth of human right. fear. I could tell my own story through the lens of fear. So I'm not I'm not at least a bit out of touch with that. But that's really different than reaching the kind of conclusion that shows to me again, not an evangel-centric life, but a human-centric life mm-hmm. in which the sociology, the economics, the power of race and gender are are literally the dominant force. And the evangel is just a tag to frame it as quote, you know, civilized, legitimate. Etc. I think I'm right that the studies that were done after the 2016 election indicated that 50% of the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump never went to church. But when asked the question, do you hmm. consider yourself an evangelical, which was taken by them to be a phrase like, do you consider yourself to be a Christian? They said yes. So that is fascinating. It's extremely fascinating. I think that uh, what you what you're tapping into here, uh, Mark, it's super significant for me is I have this thing I'm trying to hold on to my identity, my culture. The gospel does ask me to leave that. What uh, a friend of mine articulated last week as we were skiing together, he's uh, he and he knows his Bible well. And he said, he said, Richard, I mean, no disrespect to you or other Christians, but he said, what really is angering me these days is people are just using their Bible to justify their racism, to justify their xenophobia, to justify their sexism. And he says, uh, it's totally turned me off toward wanting to have anything to do with you guys. And I'm sympathetic to that that comment. And I and I guess where I want to turn the conversation as we move toward wrapping up here is uh, I found myself on the lift with him throwing stones at a certain people group, but then recognizing, man, what about? I mean, the main the main next step for me is not to simply interpret other people's flaws, 
but I have to I have to own my culpability and find my next step. And so I'm wondering, yes. Mark, for you, how how this is personalized, and you as well, Abby. Like, what what steps can we take as leaders that uh, both personally and in our leadership roles can help us become part of a solution here? Right. So it's such an important question, Richard, because it is, you know, just as the New Testament is filled with, the the collision ultimately between culture and faith is a real one. And in the United States, in the history of the United States in various places and times, basically our social identity has come to be the primary identity we embrace, not our spiritual identity as people in Christ. So we maintain the, the, the social identity and then baptize it in the way that we just talked about. I think one of the tricky things for, for me is first just realizing that I too, like you, Abby, had grown up in a moderate-sized town in the middle of Washington State. Um, it was white, but it also had uh, a fairly significant Hispanic population, a lot of it itinerant when I was a kid uh, who were working in the farms, and then, and then an American Indian or Native population. And I think one of the things that was really so striking to me about that was that when I came to faith in Christ, it was like, oh my gosh, this means I'm called to this community of unlike people that I referred to. And and that felt to me like it was both scary and perhaps the most thrilling thing I'd ever heard. And that hmm. what the adventure of Christian faith was going to do was to enlarge my own sociological realities by by welcoming me into the discovery of people not like me. And I do think that that has permeated my own discipleship and the churches and people that have been some of the most influential in my life, including the seminary I'm now the president of, has been uh, the story of that set of new, wider, deeper, greater relationships with people who do not share my race or my nationality or my gender, but who actually share in common uh, our life in Christ. So then, Richard, back to your question, the issue then becomes, in this moment, I have to first fundamentally be an endless listener. That has to just continue. I just have to shut up as a white guy. And when uh, Willie Jennings, who's a black professor at Yale, came to Fuller a couple of years ago and gave a lecture called, Can White People Be Saved? And he's using their whiteness as a as a frame of, of thought and a cultural identity rather than a a statement about melanin. The crisis that he's naming is how do we understand what it really means to be saved from our social location? Mm. And that is not the way the gospel has typically been presented in the United States, not least among evangelicals. And and there are ways that that even Fuller's own church growth movement, which was built painfully, I would argue tragically, on the homogeneous unit principle, argued for the legitimacy of homogeneity in order to lower the threshold uh, and allow people to come to Christ with the assumption that like trickle-down economics, it would eventually lead to social change. That's actually not how it works. And um, so deep listening, how do I listen to people who are not like me? And one of the things that I think is is always at hand is, why am I more willing to trust my social narrative than the social narrative of people that are different than I? Why do I feel entitled to ask more questions about mm. their claims of reality than my own. Richard, I think one of the things that has, I hope, been a constant practice for me for a long time, but especially in this last year, 
has been, how do I just trust the witness of the people I'm talking about, which includes much more dramatically right or dramatically left leaning people than I am, but also yeah. includes in the cases of race and gender, a willingness to listen carefully and deeply, and then to trust and receive the, the, the authenticity, the truthful authenticity of their witness, rather than feeling like, now let me just remake your story. It probably wasn't really quite as dramatic as you're saying, you're probably being a little hyperinflated. Well, hello, like, that, is that not also true <laughs> of me on any given day? Of course I do those things. Of course, uh, I dare say you two do these things. Of course that's true. Yep. But why, why do I not allow others the same grace that I would expect them to allow me in the telling of my story, right? I think that's a next step that all of us can practice every single day. That's really rich. When I envision you and kind of the work you're called to both at Fuller Seminary and beyond, um, the metaphor of a crucible seems somewhat fitting. Like yes. you, you lead one of the largest seminaries in the world at a time when American evangelicalism is in crisis and all the ways we've, we've sort of discussed. But then at the same time, you are, you are called and commissioned to teach and equip and encourage and shape pastors of the future for that very enterprise. And it's no small task. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just curious noticed. You, yes. you, <laughs> yeah, feeling that as you prepare sort of the next generation of faith leaders, what carries, and I, I named that I asked this question somewhat selfishly because I need to know, <laughs> not not just for them, but for myself, what carries the greatest urgency or sense of importance for you? Like the thing that you would want them to leave Fuller Seminary formed in, what, what would that look like? Right. Well, because of the image that I used early in the interview, I'll start by just saying a really big gospel, mm. a, a big gospel that is deep intellectually, that's deep emotionally, that's deep socially, that is uh, personal and for the world, that it is systemic and it's a, a gospel that is uh, for every dimension of life. So uh, I think the depth of that is probably what I would say. I, I, I always fear that people may come or go from seminary and not really have had a conversion to the bigness of the gospel itself. And I think sure. it's part of the reason why I often preach in the opening week on Romans 12, one and two. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I beg you as an act of intelligent worship to present your bodies, your whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think that ongoing work of being transformed by the renewing of my mind, by which Paul does not mean the brain, but he means every aspect of perception and consideration, that all of that would be deeply converted. And it is an ongoing work of conversion. So I think that's, I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that, that I do believe that the gospel in this era has been deeply desecrated by evangelical voices and and by evangelical actions and failures to act. This is not new news to people of color, especially especially the black church, who has often felt victimized, understandably and rightly so, by white evangelicalism. But I do think it's also the case that, that we just have to take all of that 
with full seriousness and lean toward the skeptic, like the one that that uh, Richard was just naming, a man who would say, you know, I might have affinities for elements of the gospel, but basically, if it leads to a life that looks like white American evangelicalism has looked like in the last year, and to some degree has looked like historically in various places, especially in its um, historic crisis and its intertwined relationship with slavery in America and so forth. All of that is a major crisis and the, and the church should lead in saying, amen, that is a major crisis. And the building out of our response to that then, and we do it at Fuller and we have to do it in our own congregations and so forth, has to do with how do we take and really grasp that nettle, not deflect it, take our own personal responsibility, bring it to our institutions, churches, etc., and ask, what are we going to do with this? How pervasively are we prepared to let this actually be a time of genuine reckoning? Plenty of black friends are saying to me, as I'm sure they are to you, that the so-called reckoning of last summer has already largely dissipated and was not really in the end the reckoning yet that it appeared to be, which is not to say that there weren't things that came out of that and could still come out of it, but it is not as deeply transformative. This was exactly my response to 9-11. I remember preaching the Sunday after 9-11 and saying, friends, as terrible as this week has been, what we've received is a tragic gift. It's tragic because of the loss of life, the devastation, and all of its implications. But it's a gift because it's an opportunity, painful as it is, for us to examine ourselves as a nation and to ask, what is this actually about? And hmm. I said, it, the window's going to close. It'll probably be closed in a week. It'll certainly be closed by two weeks from now. We have a tiny moment. I think that racial reckoning is a tiny moment. We have to choose someplace. Where is the moment? What is the issue? Where are the people? What are the, what's the community? What's the opportunity that allows us to take it with full seriousness? Lean toward, leaning toward the mm. critic and the skeptic, listening, not self-flagellating needlessly, but genuinely taking responsibility, confessionally, repentantly, in, in lament, and in in the kind of repentance that brings about personal and institutional change. I think people are completely weary of language. They want an incarnationalism, or what Brenda Salter McNeil, I think, wonderfully calls a credible gospel. How can mm. the church bear witness to a credible gospel and therefore be a credible witness. What we've experienced is an, an incredible witness, a non-credible witness. What's needed is a credible witness, but that is going to take time. It's going to take repentance. It's going to take change. It's going to be painful. It's going to be in the hands of white people, not asking people of color to somehow come to our rescue when we clearly have our own work to do. So I think that's the challenge that, sure. that I want to bring to Fuller. And I'm sure it's the challenge you want to bring to Bethany. Yep. Sure. I remember in your uh, preaching class back, back some years ago, I remember you saying to us every sermon we prepared to ask that question, is, is there a big gospel in this? And of course I'm paraphrasing, but, yes. but not so much. And I, I've taken that question with me as I've had the opportunity to practice preaching in, in the last several years. And I, I, I almost feel like it's, it's a metaphor right now, not just for preaching, but for the, just really how any of us who call ourselves Christians are choosing to spend our time and our 
emotional capacity and our intellectual capacity and which relationships we're choosing to lean into and who we're listening to and how we're listening and is a big gospel being manifest and embodied. Yes. And I, I just I treasure those words yeah. and, and I, I hold them in their, I treasure them acknowledging they're not simple or easy. It's, it's really the narrow way. Like that's, that's the, that's right. That's, that's right. the, um, Abby, there's a related story to that one, which is that the church that I served in Berkeley, First Presbyterian Church, has a has clear glass walls, and when you stand in the pulpit, you're looking out on whatever's happening on the streets outside in Berkeley. Mm. And I often used to envision in my mind uh, a, a people, classic Berkeley protesters, holding up a sign, glaring into the sanctuary, and the sign said, "How dare you!" and and I felt like it was exactly the right framing for what we were doing in that room. How dare we do this thing that we're doing in this room where we're claiming to worship a God made known in Jesus Christ. We're daring to read a historic book and believe that it still speaks. We're daring to confess that this should have a claim of a first order kind in all of our lives and that it should change the way that we walk out into public space into our families, our neighborhoods, our cities, our towns, with a message of God's redeeming love and justice. And if what I'm doing in the pulpit is not taking up that question, how dare I preach a gospel in this place, then the gospel that I'm preaching is Mm. surely not a gospel that deserves to be proclaimed in that setting. And my preaching is not measuring up to the credibility of the gospel itself. So I added to that uh, another element of my own spiritual preparation for preaching was uh, every Saturday night, I got a text or an email rather from a couple that I knew who were serving in some of the poorest parts of, of Southeast Asia. And their newsletter arrived every Saturday night. And mm. when I was sleeping, I would get it in the next morning. And it was a story really every week of the unbelievable human suffering that they were trying to somehow respond to mm-hmm. in their world. And it was the only email I would read before worship. And I would, I went through a process of spiritual preparation in which I said to myself, if the gospel I'm preaching today doesn't land as meaningfully for people in those circumstances, not meaning my friends, but the people that they were there to serve, mm. if the gospel that I'm preaching does not relate to their circumstances, then it's not a gospel I should be preaching. It just was one of those things that was grist for me. Preachers can mm-hmm. easily, of course, give way to the what the New Testament calls tickling the ears. And right. that is not the gospel. And uh, I, I often went home indicted by the failure of my sermon to do that, let me also add. Um, but <laughs> it happens but every week I, to me. I, yes, indeed. Yes. Why don't I just go away and shut up and stop doing this thing? Um, <laughs> Yes, I know that feeling, Richard. You know, your story uh, uh, reminds me, Mark, uh, of a completely different context, but something that uh, has helped me with this fear that you've addressed. And you, it's kind, if, I, if I were to summarize this podcast at this point, I would say that you've uh, addressed a fear that creates kind of this sense of we need to hang on to what we have, and then we become protectionist the gospel right. in contrast actually propels us outward because we've received all things and we're called to this life of uh, remarkable generosity. I was 
uh, in Austria one time teaching and I happened to be climbing and some sheep came down. They were coming down the mountain with their shepherd and I had never been around sheep and I wanted to see the sheep. So I, I repelled off the wall and I walked toward the sheep and I just said, Hey sheep. And they scattered. They were terrified. Man, what have I done? You know, this, this poor flock of sheep. now. I'm a monster to them. And then then from behind, here comes the shepherd and he says one word and they all came to him. It was moving almost to the point of tears because then he took, he led them down the hill and not only down the hill, but into town. And so I followed from a distance and here are these sheep being led through, get this, a pedestrian mall. There's an wow. Austrian like uh, Oompa band playing and people are out drinking beer. There's, there's people shopping. It's loud. I'm picturing you in Leo. Yeah. I should have been. Exactly. It's loud. But the sheep are fearless because they're with the shepherd. And I just, I've always thought, man, this is exactly what Jesus wants to do with me. He wants me to be so uh, yoked with him that I am fearless crossing social divides, fearless risking my financial resources, fearless speaking truth, fearless loving uh, my enemies. And yet that, that fear is so easily, it so easily returns to me unless I'm yoked with Christ. So I, I'm just inspired by what you offered because I think this call to live large for a large gospel is beautiful. It does demand our being yoked with Christ. Hmm. Uh, Mark, I just have one final question, and I, what is giving you hope right now? Well, at the risk of just sounding pietistic, I, I just find great hope in Jesus. Honestly, I, uh, hmm. I, I've often said, don't ever be more than five minutes away from reading the gospel in your life, whatever that means. Hmm. And and the greatest hope, honestly, continues to be simply the gospel itself. I think it's also that there are people who have allowed me into their lives in ways that give me glimpses of a greater gospel than my own. And their impact continues to so change how I perceive God and myself and my neighbor that I'm just hugely heartened by that. And often it's come out of their stories of pain and suffering, their own uh, experience of God's grace, enlarging their hearts, freeing them from undue burden on the one hand, and giving them a yoke that they are meant to carry as opposed to one they're not. And that is just so humbling to watch that. And some of the people that I, I have the privilege of knowing well are people like that. And I just find their lives as leaders, as pastors, as people in business, as people in public square debates, uh, really remarkable, humble, faithful, truth-telling people and truth-doing people. Amazing. That's really beautiful. Mark, we just want to reiterate our gratitude to you and not just for this time, but uh, for your example and your faithfulness and just even in what you just shared, I think that the humility that you put on display, if that's something that you can do, <laughs> some ways uh, opposite, but I think it's an encouragement to, to all of us who are 
are watching in this season. It's a it's a form of leadership that is aligned with, I think, the way Jesus, insofar as I understand his life, calls us calls us to lead. And I certainly know that that's a journey covered in grace for you. But Amen. we are we are hugely yes. grateful, and um, you have. Uh, as you always have a way of doing, I think in this, this hour we spent together have, have made the gospel indeed bigger and praise God for that. I do just want to say that one of the reasons why I respect both of you and the ministry of Bethany, as I do is, is not because it's a perfect church any more than any church is a perfect church, but, but more because I, I always have the feeling that the community of Bethany is a community that is trying to lean into Christ and into the world that Christ loves in ways that are profound. And and I am so grateful for that and know that there are other churches in Seattle and other churches in places all over that are, that are trying in their own way to do those things too. But I do want to really honor the way that it's happening. And I just want to encourage you to carry on with the ministries that God has given you and the courage and faithfulness that I think both of you are very honestly seeking to live and uh, it just means a great deal to me so thank you for the encouragement of getting to be together oh thanks Mark that's encouraging may it be so yes. Amen. <laughs> yeah well thank you uh, listeners for joining us for uh, this episode of Toward Wholeness and we look forward to being with you again soon <laughs>